Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a special episode of The Jim Rutt Show. I appear on Peter Lindbergh's Stoa Show, and I ask him some questions, he asks me some questions, and uh, his audience gets involved. Hope you'll enjoy it. Everyone, welcome to the Stoa. I am Peter Lindbergh, the steward of the Stoa. And I'm viewing this as a place not just to practice and talk about Stoicism, but a place for anyone to come and cohere and dialogue about what matters most at the knife's edge of this moment. Uh, and today, Jim Rutt is here, uh, the lovable Jim Rutt, who currently is uh, running the excellent Jim Rutt podcast or the Jim Rutt Show podcast. And how today came about is I was talking to Jared James, who is the, the producer of the Jim Rutt Show. Um, and we're talking about culture war stuff and how it's kind of heating up in interesting ways. And uh, Jared was mentioning this, this go back to normal narrative that is uh, been occurring that he's, he's been seeing on Twitter and whatnot. And a term just came to my mind, uh, game A fundamentalism or game A fundamentalists. Uh, so Jim, I tweeted that out and Jim reached out to me and he said that he'd like me to come on his podcast to do one of his extra shorts. And I said, hey, let's do some game B collaboration. I'm, I'm, I'm like full time doing this Stoa thing right now. So how about we just combine the two and then you come here and we have a chat about it. And then he agreed. Um, so how today's going to work is that uh, you know, Jim mentioned kind of his thoughts about this game A fundamentalism and COVID. We might have a brief uh, exchange and then we're going to open up to Q&A to the group. And how that's going to work, uh, if you have a question for, for Jim or even me, just write it in the, the chat box. Uh, and then uh, I will call you and just unmute yourself and ask it to, to Jim. Uh, if you want me to read it on your behalf, just indicate that in the, um, the chat as well. And there's one thing, yeah, there's this, with that tweet, I'm going to see if I can share this in the, in the file. With that tweet, I sent this meme. Um, it's in the chat box. And I think it's some graffiti from uh, China. It basically says, we can't return to normal because the normal that we had was precisely the problem. So with that, I'll uh, hand it over to Jim for some opening thoughts. Hey, thanks, Peter. Thanks for asking me to be on the STOA. Uh, it's, uh, it looks, it's been great work that you're doing, as we talked earlier. Uh, there are so many people who, who are physically isolated, particularly those isolated by themselves, uh, for whom these kinds of four are, are unbelievably valuable. You know, myself, I'm very fortunate that I'm with my uh, beloved wife and my daughter and her husband, and you know, four of us are having, frankly, too good a time together up here in the mountains, but I know a lot of people are really struggling. And so any kind of social interaction or conviviality that, that can be brought together over the internets is a wonderful thing. So thank you for your good work. Yes, I was quite taken with your quote, and it fit in uh, fairly well with a conceptual framework which I'm developing for uh, the backside of COVID. Uh, when we think about complex dynamic networks, particularly social networks, uh, we can think about two ways they respond to a, uh, a probe or a shock. And in uh, network theory, uh, dynamic network theory, we can think of uh, those two as homeostasis. Uh, which is the tendency to return to the state that you're in. Uh, consider the human body. Uh, life itself, is, I would argue and have argued, is uh, measured by its homeostasis, particularly on the, uh, at the couple of seconds or minute level of gases, uh, oxygen, CO2, nutrients, toxins that circulate in re real time. And most shocks to the human body uh, re result in homeostasis. So, for instance, you get a cold. Your immune system reacts, defeats the cold, you re return to where you are. On the other hand, a bullet through the heart uh, is a hysteresis event. Uh, the cycles break down, uh, the, the uh, oxygen and CO2 no longer circulate, the toxins and the nutrients, and you transform from being a living organism to a pile of rotten meat. So that's a hysteresis event. And there are things in between, you know, a cold you fully recover from, you get your leg cut off in a farming accident, well, you're not going to grow that one back. That's a hysteresis event, and you will have a very different life trajectory afterwards. Now, now we can apply the same thinking to our social economic operating system. And this COVID-19 event is a major shock, uh, certainly the most major shock since World War II, at least in the West. And 
to what degree will the response be homeostasis, the tendency for the network to reweave itself back together the way it was, and to what degree will it be hysteresis, that is, the tendency to be knocked into a new trajectory that is not predetermined uh, by the, the gestalt of what we call uh, game A. And when I saw your quote, I said, ah, this is very interesting. Because as we know, Peter uh, has done this extraordinarily interesting piece of work, I don't know, what was it, a year and a half ago, where he uh, delineated the tribes. I mean, I refer people to that document all the time. Uh, And it is such an illuminating document. It makes you think about the world in a a really, truly different way. It's really a profound and important document. And uh, we'll put a link to that document up on the podcast version of of this conversation. Uh, And I was thinking, ah, because uh, when we think about society, while these tribes are artificial, they're, you know, they're not real, people don't really live in these tribes, they are a very useful way to think about it. And one of the big forces for homeostasis, i.e. the world going back to where it was, will be aptly named group, coined by Peter, uh, Game A Fundamentalists. Uh, I guess I should take a moment here to put my cards on the table. Uh, I've been working along with a number of other people, a lar- large number of other people, uh, on something called Game B since 2013, uh, where we are attempting to craft an alternative narrative, an alternative socioeconomic political operating system that is not Game A, uh, that is designed to you know, help people live a life of self-actualization that's based on uh, radical transparency, self-organization, decentralization, network centricity, and long-term metastability, unlike our game A world, which we would argue is headed towards the cliff sometime this century if we don't change. So count me as uh, about as anti a game A fundamentalist as possible. I'm a person who would prefer that this shock be used constructively to move our socioeconomic operating system towards a new basin of attraction, which is distinctly not game A, let's call it game B. Uh, However, it's important to acknowledge that probably uh, 90% of the people at least would prefer, at least they think they prefer, if they have not been shown an alternative, uh, that, that we survive this shock and that Game A returns to business as usual. We spend all of our time collecting shiny objects and, uh, uh, you know, living a life of uh, status through materialism and positional goods. So I think it's, you know, very, very useful to uh, make explicit this concept of Game A fundamentalists. And at least for my purposes, and I would encourage other people who who think like we do, the Game B people, uh, to think about how do we help convert Game A fundamentalists to Game B radicals? So, uh, those are my uh, those are my reactions to uh, Peter's uh, provocative coining. So um, here's what's coming to mind. So I think I have a, a decent sensitivity to the narratives that are at play, um, kind of like the ideologies or the philosophies in the wild, not in the textbooks, but are like happening on the Twitter and on the internet and stuff like that. Um, and also kind of leaning into uh, the emotions and the states surrounding those narratives and fueling them. Uh, and I think what, what, when I, I like that distinction you made of the homeostasis versus the hysteresis, it's almost like two narratives are emerging from this kind of like uncertain liminal space that we're in. It's like team homeostasis and team hysteresis. Um, and I haven't been tracking the last couple of days, but I'm curious if, if, if you're seeing these, these uh, um, teams kind of like come to head. Uh, truthfully, I haven't seen shit the last couple of days. As I mentioned, I take a two-day internet sabbatical over the weekend, right, uh, right. and I'm going to recommend that as a unbelievably powerful uh, practice. Uh, I used to do it, been doing it for a year and a half, a year and a half. Uh, but then, you know, probably uh, starting in early February, I've been wallowing in this stuff uh, on the internet. And truthfully, you know, if I look at the, you know, the incidents of cases in Bangladesh. What the hell can I do about it? What does it tell me? Not much, but I sure have wasted a lot of time on it. But uh, prior to that, uh, you know, I can look back and say the people in the game B world and in the broader, uh, what we call the big change movement, the, you know, the people, regenerative e- ecology, uh, you know, the uh, world in crisis people, uh, they all see this as a real opportunity, right? Both a tragedy and an opportunity. However, what I would say people, the average person who follows their nose through life, 
which is most people, uh, are fervently hoping that this is just a blip and that life goes back to normal. I'm curious, uh, uh, the, the closing thought that you had about how do we come into dialogue with the game, be fundamentalists or the people that are being influenced by them. You have any uh, thoughts about how we might be able to do that? Now, yeah, this is unfortunately where Game B is a little behind the curve. We did not expect this crisis to occur so rapidly. We expected a crisis, uh, but of course, uh, being a complex adaptive system, uh, the predictability of such crises are uh, almost zero, right? We don't know when or where they came, but they came a little before uh, it would have been nice because unfortunately, we do not yet have the kind of popular narrative about Game B uh, that would have been really good to, to be able to point out, but here's our six-minute video that explains what an alternative way of organizing society looks like. So the best we can do is kind of freelance it, and so unfortunately, uh, probably we can't right now use this as the transition event, right? Mm. Uh, but what we can do is grow the cadre, uh, find people who are proximate, who are not Right. Game A fundamentalists, and I think that's the distinction, that there are Game A fundamentalists who are not reachable right now, right. but there are other people who are following Game A through inertia, and this is an opportunity to point out that this is just another manifestation of how broken Game A is, right? If, mm -hmm. You know, a, a, a society organized in the Game B way so that things are modular and localized it would have been very easy to stop this, right? If a hotspot occurs in a Game B world, we would say, all right, shut down module New Rochelle, right? And uh, New Rochelle would have had been evolved to be very self-sufficient, uh, had, you know, stockpiled plenty of material and food to get by for six months. Uh, and it would have been no great hardship to just snip the connections to New Rochelle and internalize it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, money on, a world defined only by money-on-money money return efficiency, which is the nature of game A, uh, inevitably builds all these highly complex cross-links, which are in nominal money-on-money money return efficient, but they are not re either robust or resilient. Hmm. Uh, and communicating that concept, frankly, we're not ready to communicate it to the masses yet, but we are ready to communicate it to the ears who will hear. Right. Uh, so I see this as an opportunity to grow the cadre from few tens of thousands of people to maybe a few hundreds of thousands of people over the next 90 days. Yeah, I like that a lot. And like you said, uh, the game a fundamentalist, some of them might be, you can't reach them, or like what Jordan Hall says, the blue church priests, you know, like it's, that's not the, the audience that we want to reach. But there's just uh, like, there's this term uh, in the stoa, someone was talking about how a bunch of uh, apocalypse memes are happening right now. And the etymology of the word apocalypse is to uh, uncover, to reveal. And we're like hitting contact with reality quite hard right now. And a lot of the bullshit's being revealed. Just like case in point, my wife, um, you know, she gets to work from home. She works at a university and then she's loving it. You know, she's getting more work done. She's enjoying life more instead of like driving like an hour to work, all these useless meetings just to work like two to three hours a day type thing. So just like little things, little scripts are being revealed as, as not necessary, as a lie. And I think this is like an opportunity to kind of lean on that. Absolutely. And I've been predicting it and frankly, uh, in doing things like in, uh, adjusting my investment portfolio, because uh, I believe that will be a series of mini hysteresis. Uh, for instance, business travel. What a fucking waste of time, energy, and depletion of our atmosphere, you know, mm. flying from New York to San Francisco for a one-hour meeting, which I have done countless times in my life, though typically not New York, either Boston or Washington. Uh, and we should have stopped doing as much business travel as we've been doing eight or ten years ago once the Internet got really fast and stable and we had good tools. Uh, now that everybody is using Zoom or Skype or WebEx or what have you, they're going, what the hell were we doing? Zipping around the country. Right? How annoying is it to go from, you know, a horrible airport to a beige hotel to an Uber to a generic conference room and back, spend 36 hours and $3,000? Fuck that shit, right? right. Uh, uh, you know, I've been doing five to 20 Zooms a week now for the last year, and I think that habit will be spreading exponentially. And so that mini hysteresis uh, will certainly occur. Hmm. Uh, the other thing, which I, I'm going to... Uh, as I was thinking about this this morning, I wish I'd said it earlier, but I'll say it now, uh, which is this uncovering. I, I love that. I did not know that was the root of apocalypse. Uh, but think about uh, the fact that we are uh, 
having ourselves personally evolved by the shock. And mm. the analogy I came up with, it may or may not be true, but it seems true, so what the hell, right? Uh, think of the 60s, which really started rolling in about 1965, slowly, then exponentially by 67, then went crazy into the early 70s. Uh, there were two huge shocks to especially American society where the 60s really uh, took off. The first was the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? The Cuban Missile Crisis uh, outlined the absurdity, the in literal insanity of the nature of game A at that time. Two superpowers with 30,000 nuclear missiles pointed at each other's big cities. And then the second one was the Kennedy assassination. Here it was, the hope of change suddenly cut down and then co-opted by a classic political operator, Lyndon Johnson, who did do some good, but was certainly not uh, a JFK. I have long believed that those two events shook the soul of many Americans, not all Americans, not even a majority, uh, and that that was the seed which uh, sprouted a couple of years later as the 60s. So if we think of these shocks that are happening to our souls, and these are the biggest shocks that have happened to the souls of individuals since World War II. I'm going to say they're bigger than either the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Kennedy assassination or 9-11. Uh, even if they don't uh, produce the game A to game B transition right now. They are opening people's eyes. They're giving them ears to hear in ways that they had right. never had before. So they will, not only can we recruit a cadre of maybe 10x more in the next three months, but maybe 10 or 15% of the people have had their uh, cognitive apparatus primed for more, for bigger challenges to game A. Right, right. So uh, I'll make one more uh statement or question and then so if anyone has a question for for jim just write it in the chat box uh and then i will either call on you or i'll read it on your behalf if you'd like me to read it on your behalf so uh the last thing i'll share um i, I want i want to see how this lands for you john verveke my friend john verveke was on this the stoa uh last week and he said something uh boldly i never i never heard him talk like this he says he wants to uh steal the culture away from those who have been abusing us for so long I was like, ooh, and just that phrase, steal the culture. Because we can't win by playing the previous game. You know, and that, that Joe Montana uh, quote comes to mind. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, right? <laughs> so why try to win a corrupt game or kind of like a pathologically uh, designed game? So I'm curious, how does that phrase land for you, steal the culture? I absolutely love it, right? Uh, I think that's exactly right, and it's what we've been trying to figure out how to do slowly but surely in the Game B world. Uh, we're not going to uh, go head-to-head -head with the blue church and you know, start the uh, green church or anything like that. We're going to instead uh, operate in a decentralized, self-organizing, network-centric fashion. And if we can grow, I would say, grow the alternative culture maybe is a little bit better than steal the culture. Mm. Uh, though, though, I'm going to stop and say maybe that events of this magnitude may allow us to steal the culture. And, and may, that may be what we call the short journey to game B. Uh, I recently wrote an essay in Medium called A, a Journey to Game B, which laid out the non-apocalyptic road to game B over 60 years. Uh, and I promised in that essay to also write the short road to game B, uh, which is around an apocalypse. And while this may not be quite extreme enough apocalypse, it might be. Uh, so it's, it's worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. But I would say growing the alternative to the culture may be a little bit more accurate. But the end result is the same, that the, that the trajectory, the world line of culture has to move to a new basin of attraction. Right, right. Okay, so uh, Greg Walsh, you have a question. Would you like to go off mute and ask it to Jim? Hello. All right. I'll read the question and then see if I uh, can expand. So uh, how does the stratification of cultures development affect our strategy or what we can expect to implement in game B principles? Uh, and then so must the culture have at least sort of their center of gravity in a modern framework? So, you know, this group is like pretty meta, I would say. We're just thinking big, big questions here. But uh so, I mean, for us to sort of pass through into game B, we have to be in this place as opposed to 
you know, people who are just trying to keep the lights on and feed themselves, you know, maybe in like third world countries. Um, is there an opportunity then for some of these like decentralized technologies of just, you know, maybe 3D printing or all these things that even though they're not sort of in a meta framework, there are these opportunities to sort of implement things that are decentralized. So. Absolutely. And I would say that it would probably have been a fool's errand to try to build game B in 1935, you know, or 1955 at the, you know, at the high water, probably 1955 was the high watermark of centralized commodity mass production, right? Uh, something like game B would not even have been on the table at that time. And so it is the prerequisites that game A created that have allowed game B to emerge. Uh, for instance, the internet, you know, for instance, the Neo, the smart, the 21st century version of Back to the Land, which we see here in rural Virginia, a whole lot. People, young people in particular, building uh, quite innovative and very uh, capable uh, local agriculture. You know, unlike the fairly hilarious hippie attempts in the 1970s, which were almost all incompetent and almost all went bust, uh, these are much more well thought out because they, there's a much stronger learning curve that's occurred. So the prerequisites are absolutely important. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, an important one will be decentralized energy. That will change a lot of thinking when you're, you're no longer dependent uh, fully on the grid. You may have used the grid as a backup and there's some uh, important sort of mathematical and network topology reasons why you still want a grid. Uh, but if you have, uh, you know, say 50% of your electricity, which is enough to get by in a crisis uh, created locally, that changes a whole lot of things. Does that answer your question? Yeah, sure. And then I guess, so we have to pass through that then. So again, it just, and then another, I guess, so much answer is that, you know, uh, what other opportunities do we see then uh, for cultures who, who haven't even passed through that? Uh, you know, again, I keep thinking of like third world countries that haven't even passed through that yet. Well, in some ways they have some advantages, right? Uh, you know, give yeah. the, for instance, uh, even not exactly third world countries, like even Japan, which had relatively rudimentary wireline telephony. Uh, they just leapt over all that in the 90s and went directly to cell technology. Uh, I have a good friend, Thor Muller, who was actually one of the co-founders of Game B, uh, who has been very active uh, with his company in selling totally localized sort of hut level solar energy in East Africa, uh, for instance. You know, they may not build out a national grid in East Africa. Uh, and so they can follow with these prerequisites and stitch together their own appropriate uh, society. Right, right. Okay, beautiful. Cool. So um, Amy has a, a question, and she actually might have a better coinage than game uh, A fundamentalist. And she said game A reactionaries. I like that. So Amy, would you like to go off mute and ask your question to Jim? Sure. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jim. So basically, I was wondering if Game B is just kind of a natural evolution that will be occurring from Game A. So instead of seeing Game B as a reaction to Game A, it's more like an evolution. And the people that are involved in Game B now are sort of more early adopters than game a reactionaries does that make sense that makes perfect sense and it's almost exactly how we've long thought about it uh the original game b team included two evolutionary scientists uh eric weinstein and john wilkins and so uh, evolutionary thinking was fundamental to the ethos of game b and then we also had in our startup team uh several uh successful executive business executives who had uh, essentially marketing backgrounds, uh, myself, uh, Jordan Hall, uh, Mike Needham, uh, a couple others. Uh, and we always use the language of innovator, early adopter, early majority, late majority, and laggards, right? And so I think it's absolutely appropriate to think of Game B as a natural evolution from Game A. Unfortunately, it's not the only one. Uh, I have written an essay called In Search of the Fifth Attractor on Medium, where I lay out other alternatives. And you can see that, you know, game B is not the only alternative. Other alternatives that seem like they could also evolve out of it are neo-fascism. Uh, I would give uh, China as the example of neo-fascism. I could easily see game A transitioning to Chinese-style state capitalism plus militarism plus nationalism. Uh, neo-feudalism. 
to my mind, extreme libertarianism of the Peter Thiel or the uh, Koch brothers variety is really a form of feudalism, where there's a few at the top who build a hierarchy of control via money of the people underneath them. I could actually see our society going that way. I could see us transitioning to a neo-dark ages if somehow the religious fundamentalists use this moment to mobilize and move us from a uh, game A operating system to something like the dark ages where religion uh, was everything. And of course, uh, you know, our anti-friend chaos is always an, uh, an alternative. You know, if the, the infrastructure breaks down, we can't, could end up in a chaotic uh, regime, which would not be good. Uh, so game A to game B is an evolutionary uh, potential pathway, but one we have to fight for to land in this right fifth attractor, uh, which we believe makes for a much better world for us and for our uh, descendants. Cool. Um, Cy Donovan Smith, you had a question for Jim? Yeah, hi. Uh, hi, Jim. Thanks, Peter. Jim, I heard you mention on a, one of your podcasts with, uh, I think, either Jordan Hall or Daniel Schmachtenberger, the specific idea of building redundancy into the electrical grid, like a second set of transformers next to everyone we've got in the event of a Carrington event, that sort of catastrophe. And I like what you said about this being more a moment for building the cadre and not for you know, maybe not a transition point for such big moves like that, but I wonder what you think the, the possibility might be for this being maybe an event to spark some infrastructural type change um, within game A uh, on the shorter term. Great question. And in fact, it is the topic mostly of the uh, brief uh, extra podcast I did with Jordan Hall uh, last week. Uh, that's mostly what we talked about, uh, that we hope even within the game A context, let's call it, uh, you know, enlightened game A-ism, uh, that we've got to find a way to uh, deflect our social uh, allocations away from the rigors of pure economic money on money and return efficiency. And investing in the Carrington event is a perfect example. For those who don't know, there was a major solar flare, was it 1857, something like that, uh, during uh, the era before electricity uh, was at all a thing, but the telegraph was a thing. And the solar flare basically hit the telegraph lines and was uh, telegraph lines worked as antennas, which concentrated uh, the solar flare and produced fires and actually killed a couple telegraph operators. It's now thought that if we had a solar flare of that intensity today, it would utterly destroy the grid, or at least it would destroy uh, enough of the key components that it could be a year or two before the grid came up. And I should add, the Astronomers believe a Carrington event solar flare hitting the Earth is about a one in 500 chance. So uh, essentially two tenths of a percent per year. And that's a big fucking percent, right? So, you know, if someone were to say we had a two tenths of a percent per year of having a nuclear war, uh, we'd be shitting ourselves pretty much, right? Uh, though I will say that's how we thought of it in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Probably thought it was more like 5% a year. But it's insane that we have not taken the relatively inexpensive preparatory uh, events uh, to be able to recover much more rapidly from a Carrington event. Uh, for instance, storing uh, replacements for the transformers in caves. You don't want them sitting right next to the other transformers. You want them in places where they won't be hit by the solar flare. Uh, further, having physical breaks in the wiring that could be literally 10 foot of wire taken out in many places. Because uh, the nice thing about a solar flare, you have two or three days warning, which is an unusual uh, kind of event. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. I hope, I hope that this priming, uh, and, and we think of the cognitive science uh, concept of priming. You see one thing and then you see other things that fit the same pattern. So, uh, you know, especially in, in uh, the United States and in much of Western Europe, uh, we were grossly underinvested. Why didn't we have stockpiles of ventilators? Why didn't we have stockpiles of N95 and N99 masks? Very inexpensive hedge for what everybody knew was going to happen. You know, these virus pandemics have been happening about every eight to 10 years uh, for several years. And anyone who studies statistical variation knows that sooner or later, a strong one was going to hit. And this is by no means the strongest one that could have hit. Uh, so hopefully this is a gigantic wake-up lesson uh, that will help us prepare not only for pandemics, but for other uh, exogenous events, uh, such as solar flares, you know, EMPs by terrorists, uh, cyber attacks on our financial and communications infrastructure, et cetera. So excellent question. Thank you. 
Okay, we have a, a lot of good questions. Uh, we might not get to all of them, and um, I'm not reading them out in order, so I'm using my discernment here. Uh, but let's go next with Benjamin. Thanks, Peter, and uh, hi, Jim. Um, I'd like to ask a question from my own personal place. I'm a student in Teachers College right now, and um, I can't speak for all Teachers Colleges, but I can say it is very much like a game A world where there's a lot of busy work, a lot of work that is really unnecessary to make good teachers. And they're holding on to me and my friends in other colleges also. I'm in Israel, by the way, um, pretty tightly and giving us a lot of work to do now. And as this is in some ways um, a shake-up period between game A and game B, I want to know, kind of going off of what John Verveke said about stealing the culture, and he said kind of growing the culture, is this a time to rebel in a certain sense, um, where um, people who are kind of in this place where they can afford uh, somewhat sacrificing parts of game A and getting good grades or whatever it would be in order to throw themselves at things like end coronavirus or uh, other projects that are much more game B oriented? Or do you think that that would be a mistake by going too early and really part of developing game B requires people on top of game A kind of and climbing up that ladder would be a better long-term investment? That's a damn good question, tell you the truth. Uh, let me think about that a second before I answer. Okay, here's the answer, and it's probably not a surprise. It depends. If you have an obvious move to a Game B alternative, say, for instance, to build a Game B venture, one of the things I talk about in a journey to Game B is the idea of Game B ventures. And, you know, we would expect them to be operated as co-ops or community-owned or funded in non-predatory financial means, such as good enough rate of return, right? Uh, if you have such a thing either proximal to you or that you could create and in Israel, you have the very interesting example of kibbutz, which, uh, while has its issues, also has some great learnings on how to have a, I would say, a game B proximate style of business. If you have an alternative, take it, but don't cut your own throat. Uh, I think uh, we don't want game B people who are getting ready for game B to bail from their game A signatures too early. So don't be a fool, be wise, be thinking about creating a game B uh, alternative. I will say, you know, my business career was mostly being an entrepreneur and helping entrepreneurs. And uh, when people came to me with a business plan, one of the first things I'd say, how long have you been working on this, right? Uh, and if the answer was two weeks, I'd say, why don't you go back and do some more work? I seldom found a good business idea that didn't take nine months of study and research and development before it was ready to launch, uh, about the same time as it takes to grow a baby. Uh, so, uh, you know, move when, the t when you have a place to move to, uh, but don't cut your throat in the interim. And be thinking about the move. Be organizing with people to create the move that you want to make. Does that answer your question? Well, yeah, I mean, the best that you could, right? Because it depends. Uh, <laughs> it depends, right? But, uh, thank you, right? So, but thank you for the streams of thoughts. Yeah, that uh, definitely helps a lot. Thank you very much. Thanks for the question. All right, Drew Buckmiller. I was just wondering, so a lot of the talk about Game B is about, you know, allowing people to go for the, the, the projects that are not necessarily, you know, the money on money returns. And I'm wondering, long term, a universal basic income makes a lot of sense. But I'm wondering in a transitionary period, and I'm recalling the, the, the talk that the, the NeuroHacker founders did called the, the transition in the three groups of you know, stopping immediate bad things from happening, an interface transitionary period that can interact with game A and then a future um, game B. If in that transitionary period, is there a role for people who have been successful in game A to fund a basic income for some people? It wouldn't be a universal basic income, but a basic income for people who maybe are in a position to um, really contribute to a future that they wouldn't otherwise be able to if they had to work to survive? Well, certainly be part of it uh, and is already part of it to a very small degree. Uh, there are people uh, who are working a little bit on the background uh, of Game B who have been funded by uh, some of the, you know, Game A successful uh, people. On the other hand, uh, even unless they're, you know, 
Bill Gates level, the, the amount they can, they can realistically fund is relatively small. Uh, so game B has to be smart at parasitizing game A. Uh, we can catalyze with a little bit of founder money, if you want to call it that. Uh, but game B can't be a bunch of hippies living in mud huts, right? Uh, game B has to be able to create value uh, to sell back to game A. And it's at least our operating hypothesis. And again, I'd point you to my uh, long essay, A Journey to Game B on Medium, uh, which lays this out in some detail. Uh, it is our working hypothesis that a group of people operating in honesty and good faith, uh, with high coherence, with high sovereignty, uh, not only ought to build a better society in a place that we'd be proud to live in, but ought to be able to compete the hell out of game A in its own game. And uh, from the very beginning, in fact, Jordan Hall's very original concept of game A in January 2013 uh, was that this new way of being uh, would not only be a better way of being, but could actively parasitize game A. Uh, so the idea of game B ventures is absolutely critical to this. And this is where uh, you know, some founder money uh, could be useful in the same way that seed capital is useful in the game A world. So if we could, uh, and, and I should add, uh, one of the projects that we're actively working on in game B is to set up uh, an extended crowdfunding platform uh, so that people of all levels of capital accumulation can uh, invest either on a donation basis or in a uh, you know, non-exploitive finance basis in these early game, a, game B ventures. However, if they're going to scale, the game B ventures have to be able to win in game A terms, which is, uh, seems like a contradiction, right? How do you beat game A by playing the game of honesty and good faith? Uh, but I say their answer to that is by having higher coherence, higher sovereignty, uh, self-organization, and network centricity uh, built deeply into your DNA. That's, that's really good. Um, Nicholas, you had a, a similar question. Do you want to piggyback on what was just said? Sure. So we, we have a startup. We've been working on it for five years. Uh, and um, we've consciously eschewed um, traditional forms of investment. And that's been very, very difficult for us. So we've been bootstrapping. And we want to get in. We, we consider ourselves a Game B venture. But we have very few means at our disposal. So we've considered crowdfunding and, um, and are, are at a loss as to where to go um, in order to tap into the supposed impact game B investor network, you know, if, if there is one at that. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, a lot of people are in the same place you are, uh, frankly, because today there is no such mechanism, as you have discovered, right? Uh, once in a while, you find a good-hearted person who is in your extended social network, and they help you out, uh, but there's no way to make your project visible to a lot of people, uh, nor is there a trusted intermediary to aggregate the funds, uh, and we believe that is one of the earliest things uh, that Game B needs, and in fact, it is my number one uh, game B project that and a uh, honorable and game B gig economy platform. Those are my two short-term goals. Uh, if we could have a gig economy platform that was owned by the uh, by the talent, uh, and if we could have a quite sophisticated crowdfunding that went everywhere from donations to the equivalent of securities uh, on a non-rapacious financial basis. Uh, and we had, you know, social reputation networks around those to vet both ventures and employees. I think we'd have three of the most important things necessary to do what you're saying. But unfortunately, they don't exist today, but they're very high on my list of priorities and on other people's list of priorities to get done. Thank you. That answers uh, me. And by the way, if you'd like, I'd be happy to chat with you uh, on a video conference to give you whatever thoughts I have that may or may not help. But you'll get every, it'll be worth every penny you pay for it, which it'll be free. I would love that. Thanks. Dino, you had a question for Jim? Hi, Jim. Hi, everyone. Yeah, this is a little bit metaphysical maybe, but I was listening a lot to your show, a lot from Daniel and Jordan. And there's a lot of framing around how we make better sense of plan uh, plan A uh, to then step into plan B and a little bit around the framework um, and maybe logical steps we can take to action it. And then I got uh, listening to Nora Bateson and a more feminine approach to it. And she was basically saying we can't really make a logical step-to-step -step framework for plan B, but more so meet complexity with complexity. And even though that's very metaphysical, I thought. Um, 
what what is your thoughts around that because i'm not i'm seeing a lot of masculine a lot of men in this space but these are complex times and and i notice the intuition of a woman and translating that into a maybe actionable process um is important i was just wondering your thoughts around that okay thank you for the question if you've listened to my show you know that one of my famous uh, statements is when i hear the word metaphysics i reach for my pistol here's my pistol right <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> but nonetheless your question is not a metaphysical one so uh, i will entertain it uh it's actually uh, a core qu question and one that uh, i think most game b people agree with uh you know complexity science has informed game b from the beginning in fact uh, the very root of what became the Emancipation Party, uh, which, by the way, uh, the website still exists, if not the party, emancipationparty.org. You can read the work that we did in 2012. Uh, originally, Jordan Hall and I met after a, a Santa Fe Institute board meeting. We were both on the board of trustees. Uh, we had a meeting in 2008, and we talked for like six hours. And we were like, holy shit, here's the other person that sees the world like we do. I talk about it perhaps more than Jordan. I we both do. Complexity is deep, deep, deep in the game A toolkit. And we strongly believe that uh, the unfair advantage game B will have uh, against game A is game A is more, it, it un doesn't understand complexity. What it understands is complicated, right? A, uh, you know, a factory that builds, uh, you know, Toyotas is complicated. It's not really complex. Uh, it's more complex. It's more complex than a General Motors factory from 1975, uh, but it is not truly complex. And so we believe that uh, understanding the complicated in the context of the complex is going to be an important uh, game B advantage and allow us over time to literally outcompete game A. And uh, by the way, I did a episode with Nora on my podcast, and I truly respect her as a thinker, and she is one of the uh, important thinkers uh, in uh, the Game B movement. Uh, you know, and it is interesting, this masculine, feminine, I don't know, I don't worry about that shit too much. I'm what I call an equality feminist. I believe men and women at the end of the day are more similar than they are different. There are some differences, but, uh, you know, I, not, not something I spend too much time thinking about, but I do wish there were more uh, women's voices in the game B movement. It's about 25% today. It would be nice if it was 35% or 45%. Dan Feldman, you had a question? Um, with respect to meta narratives, uh, what do you see as the deep archetypes, deep attractors, and memes that are, quote, end quote, pulling us into a just and regenerative future? Okay, meta narratives. Well, f you know, I think the first one, this is one Daniel Schmachtenberger has emphasized, and I think he's correct, and why something like Game B better win. And that is uh, Game A it was is by no means all bad right uh game a and you know i had another podcast with jordan back in july jordan hall about the history of mostly about the history of game a and you can argue it goes back twelve thousand years or it goes back to uh, my favorite uh, 1694 uh, with the invention of the bank england uh but if we really want to think of it in its fully modern form, let's start with 1800. Uh, and that is when fossil fuels became uh, the underpinning, or started to become the underpinning of society. And humanity got this bonus uh, where we were able to finally transcend the limits of animal power and a little bit of wind and water uh, to very rapidly, at an insane rate, uh, build the energetic intensity of our society between 1800 and let's call it, uh, you know, today. Uh, maybe we peaked around, well, we're, we still haven't peaked. Uh, and we liberated humanity from the drudgery that had been in since 12,000 years ago when we accidentally fell into agriculture, where in 1800, 90 plus percent of humans 95% of humans uh, were peasants working the land at the verge of starvation, uh, physical drudgery, uh, you know, rife with superstition, etc. And this game A explosion of energy and science and technology uh, has brought us uh, to a world uh, where we can be self-actualized. I mean, hardly anybody was self-actualized in 1800. A few noblemen maybe 
almost no noble women because the patriarchy was at its you know, fullest power. Uh, however, this is uh, you know, the key insight, game A is a game out of control. Uh, its operating system, money on money return, uh, empowered all this amazing shit over the last uh, 200 plus years, but it doesn't know how to turn itself off. And if it doesn't turn itself off, we're going to go right over the cliff. We're going to overpopulate, though that finally seems to be turning down. Uh, but more importantly, we're going to fry the world. We're going to deplete the resources. We're going to kill all the natural life. We're going to lose our soils. Uh, game A does not know how to think about the long term because it's uh, money on money return, uh, for those who studied finance, is literally an exponential. It discounts the future exponentially. It doesn't give a shit about the future. If you take a 6% rate of return, which is a fairly low one in uh, risk finance, 100 years out is worth almost nothing. And that is, you know, immoral and intolerable uh, from a perspective of the long-term uh, success of the human race. So the first meta narrative is while game A brought us here to a not bad place. I mean, the cards we have today are pretty good. We have photovoltaics. We have advanced wind. Uh, you know, we have distributed grid. We have artificial intelligence, which can be either our servant or our master, depending on uh, how we deal with it. But if we let game A run in its exponential fashion, it'll destroy it all. So that's the number one meta narrative. Uh, the number two meta narrative uh, is that uh, Game A has programmed us through its messaging, particularly the mass messaging of TV and then the kind of uh, surrogate of TV, which is Facebook, uh, to think in terms of uh, material possessions and positional goods uh, as, the, as the meaning of one's status in life. Uh, that meta narrative also has to be broken. In fact, the two go together. Uh, to the degree that status and positional goods are what defines your self-worth, then of course, more, 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 growth, growth, growth uh, is what you want. So the two need to be broken together. Uh, we need to develop a new meta narrative about meaning. And, uh, you know, the one I've been pushing for since 2012 has been not he who dies with the most toys wins, but uh, he or she who dies with the most skills, accomplishments, and insights wins. The self-actualized person is the one with the highest status. And if we can have that as what motivates the person, then we have the ability to turn off the insane exponential growth machine, which is within 100 years of destroying us all. Sorry for the rant, but I feel passionate about this. <laughs> it's a treat hearing a Jim Rutt rant, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so we'll end with this question from Adam Robert. He asked me to read it on his behalf. Jim, how do you see the emerging dynamic exemplified vividly during COVID-19 news reporting between citizen reporting and, and orthogonal voices on one hand and mainstream media and expert reporting on the other? The good advice seems to be coming from minor voices. What are the risks and benefits of the new media landscape? Does this conversation map onto game A and game B at all? Ah, very, very important question. And this is one that is in flux right now. Uh, Game B strongly believes in the collective intelligence network. I think the foundational document is Jordan Hall's Situational Assessment 2017, which is on Medium in his Deep Code collection, uh, where he talks a lot about uh, the uh, decentralized network versus what he calls the blue church, which we could think of as mainstream media and the, and the establishment. However, uh, and this is important, uh, so far we don't have the right tools uh, for the collective intelligence network uh, to do uniformly high-quality sense-making. There is not only a lot of good material out in the peer-to-peer uh, -peer information world, but there's also a lot of real horseshit. Uh, and I would say 90% of people don't have the discernment powers to tell one from the other. Uh, in a pre-COVID world, uh, an example is some screwy-ass thing called QAnon, right, which is a classic decentralized grassroots conspiracy theory, uh, which to my mind is an example of a peer-to-peer -peer distributed network having a schizophrenic event uh, that resonates with uh, a number of the equivalent of neurons, meaning humans, and has produced very bad garbage, which has filled the minds of many millions of people with 
worse than useless horseshit. Uh, we don't yet have the tools for mass discernment that could have down-regulated QAnon to, all right, there's a few freaks over there, let them freak, but uh, let's not, many of us, pay too much attention to it. Uh, in the COVID world, uh, we are, in an ad hoc fashion, finding these ways to filter. Uh, and I believe one of, the thing, one of the learnings that will come out of the COVID-19 crisis is how does one do uh, group peer-to-peer -peer discernment uh, to separate the shit from the shinola, the wheat from the chaff? Uh, and uh, there's on Rally Point Alpha, uh, one of the Facebook groups that's in some ways related to Game A, uh, there's a pretty good topic on that is well-filtered for sense. Uh, I'm also a member of a private uh, chat uh, messaging thing, Facebook message, whatever the hell they call their goofy ass messenger service, uh, which is self-organized and it is quite good. Uh, and it uses both mainstream media and peer-to-peer uh, -peer media, but uh, because it is by invitation only and people who are not crazy, uh, the, discern the collective discernment is way better than our individual discernment. So that's a long answer to a uh, perhaps a brisker question, uh, which is longer term, peer-to-peer -peer is going to be very important. Experts will also be important, but we also need to challenge experts. You know, experts have their vested interests. But peer-to-peer -peer needs group discernment tools uh, to be truly effective. Uh, and we are developing them in an ad hoc fashion uh, in this crisis. And I would strongly encourage people who want to make sense uh, to not listen to the infinite chatter. It's just too much noise, it's too hard to turn signal to noise, but to self-organize into groups of people who, you know, groups I'd say no more than a few, a thousand maybe at the most, of high quality people who can use group discernment uh, to figure out what makes sense from the peer-to-peer -peer world, what makes sense from the experts, uh, and to synthesize a view for action. Right, right. So we'll end here. Um, some excellent questions today. Uh, and this is why I love kind of outsourcing the questions to the collective intelligence because you get some goodies that, you know, I would have never thought of. Um, Jim, uh, would you like to kind of have any closing thoughts? Ah, closing thoughts. Uh, be brave, right? Uh, be hopeful, right? Uh, despair is useless. Have a bias towards action. Uh, don't sit on your fucking ass. Uh, if you see something to be done, do it. Uh, reach out to other people. You know, events like this are huge. Remember the poor people who are who are locked down by themselves, which has got to be a horrible thing. Uh, reach out to them. I'm you know daily calling old friends from as far back as high school, uh, just because I'm a natural fucking extrovert and I love to chat. So uh, and I have some extra time and energy. So I'll, I'm literally going to call a friend who I haven't seen since junior high school. I'm going to call him uh, later today, and we're going to chat. So. Don't despair. There is hope and future on the other side of this. Hysteresis works in our favor. Be ready to join the cadre, recruit others to the cadre. This is probably not quite yet the revolutionary moment, uh, but it may be uh, relatively soon. Beautiful, beautiful. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.